I'm going to start off by tipping my hand and let you know exactly what I'm going to try and do in the sermon this morning. I'm going to try and accomplish two things. The first is to convince you that your Lenten disciplines, as well-intentioned as they may be, uh, whatever they are, are ultimately worthless in God's eyes. (laughs) Second, I hope to then persuade you to double down on those same practices and observe them even more intentionally than before. A tall order, but stick with me. I think we can do this. Let's begin with what I found to be a general observation that comes with practicing any sort of fast or spiritual discipline. Uh, My observation is that you and I are pretty terrible. Uh, Not just a little bit, but really, really bad. Um, Perhaps it's just me, but only 10 days into Lent, I often find myself longing to do only what I'm fasting from. Or I find that I'm observing my fast while being bitter about it. Or maybe I'm not even noticing that I'm fasting, which kind of feels like cheating. Because if you don't even notice that you're fasting, does it even really count? Um, My Lenten experience is that even the smallest introduction of law into my life exposes a great deal of sin. Being awful, of course, isn't a recent development. In Genesis, from the moment that Adam and Eve began to pursue their own misguided understanding of what is best, sin infected everything. We read of jealousy and murder, of such widespread depravity that God flooded the earth. And then in the attempt to box God out of the picture, humanity's refusal to fulfill the commandment to be fruitful and multiply, and the building of a tower to commemorate human excellence independent of God. But then comes Abraham. And anyone who's read the Jesus Storybook Bible, which I hope you have because it is excellent, has had Sally Lloyd-Jones point out the key to the whole biblical narrative in this story, God's rescue plan. The promise in Genesis 12 to Abraham is God's plan to help humans run back to him, away from the destructive patterns of sin. From Genesis 3 through 11, we see the ravages of sin, and then in Genesis 12, with this promise to Abraham, God starts the process of undoing what humans had wrought. Now, Noah earned the right to be God's go-to guy. He was righteous, but Abraham, he had done nothing of the sort. Joshua would later point out that before Abraham, the descendants of Adam and Eve worshipped other gods. And we can presume that this described Abraham as well, until he met the God who would later call himself I Am. In fact, after receiving this covenant, this promise, Abraham builds an altar by a mighty tree, which is exactly the kind of thing you do if you worship the gods like anyone else practicing folk religions of the Middle East. Abraham still behaves and worships in a way that looks like everybody else. He hasn't received the law yet. Abraham is sort of ignorant of what we imagine as sort of true belief. Now, Abraham responds well to this gift and this covenant, sometimes not so well. But nothing about his actions beforehand earned him the right to be the father of many nations. And as Paul points out in Romans, as we heard this morning, we haven't done anything to earn our status either in God's family. God isn't obliged to do anything for us. Paul's metaphor is that when someone gives you something in response to what you've done, it's functionally a wage. It's something you've earned. There's no charity. There's no love. It's simply a transaction. And the only wage that we earn is death, the payment for our rebellion against God. The grace that God gives us then is a gift. Now, this is Christianity 101, but sometimes we have to remind ourselves that God is not really impressed by us. He offers us grace completely independent of our actions. Now, we'll get to our response in a minute. But let's never forget that God's love is initiated because of his own nature as a God who loves, 
not as a response to anything that we've done as particularly special people. So, to my initial goal this morning, the first goal, God doesn't look at us during these 40 days of Lent and say, wow, look at how you've restrained from using social media. I'm just so proud of all those chocolates you didn't eat. We know it cognitively, but not in our hearts, that disciplines and sacrifices do not in and of themselves please God, no matter how spiritual they are. This goes back to the Old Testament, where over and over again we read that God never really needed burned cows in the first place. It turns out he kind of owns them all. So what does God care about? What is it that God wants from us? Or maybe a better question is this, what does God want for us? We got to hear John 3.16 this morning of God's love for the world and of the eternal life that is the outcome of that love. So what is it that Jesus is telling Nicodemus? I think sometimes we read about being born again and think that conversion is an end in and of itself. That the point of Jesus talking to Nicodemus about how God so loved the world is that so that people can get in, get your ticket punched, acquire that fire insurance that you've been hoping for so that after you die you can find your name in the book of life. But there's a few things that I think are lacking when we frame it this way. A few verses earlier, before that famous verse, John 3.16, Jesus references a story from Numbers. The people of Israel were wandering in the wilderness and they were grumbling, as they did, and as we would have done as well. Let's not be self-righteous in Lent. So God sends serpents, poisonous snakes, to bite them. And what the people of Israel had to do in order to be healed was to look up at a bronze serpent that Moses put on a pole. And that was it. They had to look and gaze upon this bronze serpent and they would be healed. Now, I'll be honest, this comparison sort of strikes me very uncomfortably because I often wonder myself, what exactly is believing in him look like? When we talk about John 3.16, you just have to believe. What is it? It can't just be a cognitive assent. It can't simply be saying or thinking true things about God. Jesus points out that the demons are capable of telling true things about God. So I want to think that it needs proof or action. Like the story of the tightrope walker who asked the crowd if he could walk across Niagara Falls with a wheelbarrow with somebody in it. And everyone, absolutely, we believe you can do it. And then he says, who's going to jump into the wheelbarrow? And nobody does. I want to say you have to get in that wheelbarrow. That's what faith looks like. It looks like not just thinking it, but doing it. That you have to, like Abraham, hold the knife above your son to prove your faith. And yet the example that Jesus gives us in John 3 is just those who looked up at the snake. That's all. So, is this this our answer? We just look at Jesus, believe in him, confess with our mouths, and we're set. No more worries. Back to our tickets punched, back to our fire insurance. I don't think so. Because what Jesus is talking about is initiation. And initiation is, of course, only the beginning. You don't get healed simply for the sake of eradicating a virus. You're healed so that your body can be free of the virus and do what it was meant to do. Doctors don't just have a personal vendetta against sicknesses, and that's why they heal people. Sicknesses keep people from doing what they're meant to do, and so doctors help them become healthy. Jesus isn't just talking about eternal life delayed, but life starting now, entering the kingdom of God. And as he regularly preached, the kingdom of God had arrived. And so this birth from above that Jesus spoke of is the way that you started living in the kingdom of God. 
the assumption then is that you would continue. We don't do anything to earn the healing, but at least one of the reasons we're healed is so that we can move on to bring that healing to others. Abraham's story is the beginning of the undoing of sin, but the covenant with Abraham is the means, not the end. Abraham isn't the point. Abraham was promised not just his own tract of land for his people, but that he would be a blessing to all nations. Even that tract of holy land was a means to an end. Because we read this morning that Paul tells us Abraham was meant to inherit the whole world. God's rescue plan has always been intended for worldwide distribution because the sickness is a worldwide epidemic. The blessing to come from Abraham then is accomplished in Jesus. And Jesus leaves the Holy Spirit poured out on his disciples so that they could go to Jerusalem and Judea and to the ends of the earth with the antidote to everyone affected by the disease of sin. And that mission is passed on to us. But, to the first point, we are terrible. So how do terrible people bring healing to others when we still continue to show symptoms of the disease? Well, we continue to be healed. We need to continue to be healed. And we continue to be healed by looking upon the cross where the Son of Man, like the golden serpent, was lifted up. And upon looking to him and believing in him, we receive healing. And as Father Martin pointed out last week, you don't excavate and deal with your temptations and your sin by retreating to a cabin in the woods. You have to unearth and face them. This means that these Lenten disciplines, while by no means winning anything special about God, or winning anything special with God, they're still the means by which God excavates the skeletons that we've long buried, so he can do some healing. The fact that all I want to do is the thing that I'm fasting from exposes my sin, and it's only upon exposure of that sin that God can deal with and heal that sin. You can't do it. I can't do it. Disciplines aren't spiritual workouts where you build up your sanctified muscles. Lent isn't about gains. It's about God restoring and renewing you. The same God who creates something out of nothing, making a family for himself where none existed. God who initiates his love for us and then wants to do the sanctifying process of tilling the soil of our hearts until it can grow trees that produce the fruit of the Spirit. So, double down on your spiritual Lenten disciplines. Don't simply observe them meaninglessly. Fasting without prayer is simply a spring diet. Allow what you do to be a place where God can step in and heal you. You don't heal yourself. You are healed. And take heart that neither Paul nor Abraham were anything special until God began to work in their lives. And there was plenty of work to do in both of their lives. So take comfort if there's still work to do in yours as there is in mine. I pray that we find ourselves face-to-face with our wretchedness, with our sin-sick souls this Lent, and that we then give them over to the great physician to heal us and make us new so that we can be rescued, continue to be rescued, and then be the outpouring of God's rescue mission to undo all the sad things of this world, bringing the whole created order to be healed by the leaves that grow on the tree of life so that all things and all people can live the full and abundant life that God intended for us all along. Amen.